0: I want to open with a quote that most of us will recognize, and it goes like this. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And most of us recognize that because these are some of the most famous words by one of the most famous Uh, speeches ever given by a president of the United States of America. The Gettysburg Address delivered by Abraham Lincoln on November 19th, 1863. It was a call for the end of slavery, an opposition to the Confederate South, and some would even say even the Christian South during that time. And church members across all communities used slaves in a way that was not Correct, as we know, without question, one of the darkest periods in American Christian history—a period of history that makes a passage and a study like we're going to see this morning a little more sensitive to us. So, if we don't understand what this passage means, we could take it the wrong way if we don't understand what we're reading. So, we're going to try to explain what we're reading this morning. First Timothy six verses one through two: Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants. "...regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved." So as soon as we read that, do we think, is Paul endorsing slavery? In the New Testament, is the New Testament endorsing slavery? If we go to the Old Testament, we see uh, uh, scenes of slavery There is the Old Testament and God endorsing slavery. So we want to see what the Bible says about slavery and why would Paul write something like he did here in 1 Timothy 6 and what does that have to do uh, with us understanding the gospel and slavery in a world today. So slavery in history... Before we get into a lot of scripture, I want to go over um, preliminary uh, uh, kind of steps getting us to where we need to be. I want to go over some um, different types of slavery. And when we hear slavery, we understand some images come to our mind and we think of some things, how things were done. And I want us to understand uh, that some were far worse than others. I want us to show four different types of slavery that will help us get a perspective on this passage. Number one is Hebrew servanthood. Hebrew servanthood. We're going to go over to uh, Leviticus chapter 25 here in a second, and we'll come back to 1 Timothy. And what we see uh, in God's law in the Old Testament is we see a history of Hebrew servanthood. And this is the way that God had set it up for Israelites who may have been impoverished or were poor or couldn't stand on their own two feet. They would go into uh, service or servanthood that would help them, over the progression of time, be able to stand on their own two feet and start supporting their family. In Deuteronomy 15, it was God's desire that no one would be poor among his people. And at the same time, in a sinful world, eventually poverty would come because of a sinful world. So God made the provision for those who were in poverty... Uh, through his picture of her Hebrew servanthood, and in Leviticus 25, starting in verse 35, it says there, and this was God uh, speaking to the people of Israel. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest in from him or profit, but fear your God that you your brother may be. May live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you your land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you. Until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possessions of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, and they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. And then it goes on. And uh, uh, what it's talking about, about the people of Israel is an impoverished people, impoverished Israelites. And it goes on to talk about uh, impoverished foreigners uh, uh, that we won't touch bases on this morning. Um, But what we got is is basically a system set up where an impoverished Israelite could sell himself into a slave type role. To uh, work as a hired servant of a master to pay off any debt. And in that process, um, get to a point where he can stand on his own two feet. And it talks about the year of jubilee. You know, we studied on this a few months ago, uh, the year of jubilee. Every seven years from the seventh year, all slaves would have the opportunity to be set free. All servants in this kind of situation would have the opportunity to be back on their own. All all of this is a picture very similar to indentured servanthood, servanthood, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, But we've got Israelites in the Old Testament who would enter into a picture where they would go to work as a hired servant. To get uh, back on their feet. When we, uh, from from the beginning of the sermon, I want us to understand that when we see when it comes to slavery in the Old Testament, it is very different from what we see when it comes to pre-war slavery, pre-Civil War slavery in the Southern United States. Very different picture. So that was Old uh, Hebrew servanthood. Then we come to uh, Greco-Roman slavery. In the New Testament, we introduced to this type of slavery, which was completely different than the Hebrew uh, Old Testament slavery. Slavery was uh, very prevalent throughout the Roman Empire and Roman economy, and some estimate that up to 50 or 60 million uh, people were slaves during that time. And when we think about it, uh, the picture of slavery, the Roman slavery background here um, This was just one time period. We've got people who were slaves in the the Roman Empire time who uh, meant that they were more or less an employee of the Roman Empire. Um, Some were teachers, some were cooks, some were uh, whatever it may have been, but but that type of picture of slavery to the Roman uh, Empire was that way. And it was actually a path for some to actually become a Roman citizen over time serving the Roman Empire and many of the slaves were released by about the time they were 30 years old or so and this was much more humane way of slavery than what we typically think of and um, just because it was humane doesn't mean that it was abused. You know the Roman Empire we see countless pictures of uh, torture and slavery that they did over the time of their rule. So it wasn't all humane, but the basis of their um, purpose of their slavery was, uh, if you want to say, humane. So slavery was certainly not not ideal, but the point is Greco-Roman slavery looked very different than the Old Testament Hebrew servanthood. And in many ways looked different um, than we may look at in American history. So American history... Um, slavery or indentured servitude. Many of the people who came from Europe when they immigrated over to the Americas um, couldn't afford to be on their own. So they were indentured servants to those who may have owned land here to work for them, to support their family, to get their family going, and to be able to uh, move forward with their life. Kind of like an apprentice type of role they would they would agree to work in somebody's household in that manner so this is the picture is kind of more similar to the hebrew servanthood that we were just talked about so we've got old testament hebrew servanthood we have new testament greco-roman slavery and then we have colonial america or indentured servanthood and then we come down to the african slave trade A practice promoted in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries where millions and millions of Africans were sold and traded across Europe and America. Transported, as most of us know, know in very cruel ways. Grueling conditions that many of them would not even make it to port without death first. And then when they were sold into slavery, they were subjected to harsh working conditions and oftentimes physical and sexual abuse and torture. Frederick Douglass describes his first master this way, Captain Anthony. He said, he was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slaveholding. He would at times seem to take great pleasure in whipping a slave. I have often been awakened at the dawn of day by the most heart-rending shrieks of an own mine who he used to tie up to a joist and whipped until she was literally covered with blood. No words, no tears, nor prayer from his glory, his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from his purpose. And if you continue to read that, it gets more graphic as it goes on. And I want to read that because I want us to understand the absolute horror that took place during that type of slavery. Not that long ago in our history. And I want us to make sure that we understand. That this is not the type of slavery that Paul is talking about here in 1st Timothy. So when we read 1st Timothy these passages. We cannot associate with that type of, that type of uh, slavery. It could be very confusing if we were just read that and get that picture in our mind. He was actually uh, addressing slaves who were um, in basically, if you want to say, a congregation at Ephesus with masters sitting right next to them. You know, slaves and masters sitting on the same, in the same building, learning and understanding and worshiping God. So he's giving some specific instructions here on how it might look uh, in a sinful system, in a sinful world, that involves slavery and masters. Okay. So when we think about uh, biblical history, uh, it's filled with various perspectives on slavery, meaning that the way that the Leviticus addresses Hebrew servanthood in the Old Testament is going to be very different than the way that Paul addresses Roman slavery in the New Testament. Two totally different things. In all of this, it's, it's necessary for us to realize a few things. Number one, slavery was not a part of God's creation that is what uh, it was not a, in a, God's original order but slavery is a product of sin in the world and that is key we look at Genesis 1 and 2 uh, we see a distinction between male and female we see no distinction between slave and master and it's part of um, that was not part of God's original creation it's a product of the fall which is when we get into uh, uh, scripture in the New Testament, a picture of heaven, it says there is no slave. And there is no slave and free there. Where sin will be no more, slavery will be no more. And heaven will know nothing of indentured servanthood. It will know nothing of class warfare. It will know nothing of abuse or mistreatment that we have seen in our history here in America with the slave trade. Where there is where sin is no more, slavery will be no more. And then our next point, slavery is not a product, or I'm sorry, slavery is a product of sin. Which then leads us to realize that when we see slavery mentioned in the Bible, we have specific situations in a sinful world that warrant specific instructions in a sinful world. So we've got... Different circumstances that are being addressed in Leviticus and 1 Timothy um, that represents the presence of sin. And so Paul is instructing them on how to navigate around this stuff. The third thing that we want to realize here is that biblical instruction of slavery does not imply biblical approval of slavery. And that is key. So if we put it all together, slavery is not God's, in God's original design Not God's ultimate desire. It's a a product of sin in the world. And then when we see Paul, uh, as one example, addressing slavery, it doesn't mean that he's endorsing it. Instead, he's helping guide people who are involved in it in a sinful system where slavery is present. This is not the only time something like this happens in the Bible. Think about divorce. Divorce was not in God's original design. Yet, in a sinful world, God laid out some instructions on how to deal with divorce if that was ever the case. So just because it's in the Bible with instruction doesn't mean that it was originally uh, endorsed or or, uh, created by God, if you want to say. A product of sin. So uh, in Scripture, when we see in the Old Testament, even Jesus in the New Testament giving regulations concerning divorce... You know, Jesus gave those some of those uh, directions as well. It was an effect in, of sin in the world and how we should respond to it, okay? I want to make sure we have a clear understanding when it comes to slavery in scripture with the overall picture of God's word on slavery and it'll help us understand uh, what these verses mean. The Bible condemns slavery. The Bible condemns slavery. And what I want us to see Um, is that the Bible clearly shows us that. The Bible, uh, uh, for the exact same reasons that we were just talking about in creation, the Bible condemns slavery that undermines God's creation. Genesis 1, verses 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God created man and woman with equal dignity before God, and anything that undermines that dignity, including slavery... That functionality denies the dignity and it dishonors God. Lincoln didn't come up with that idea that all men were created equal. God came up with that idea. Job 31 verse 15, Job is talking about um, a servant. So Job had all of his servants in the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew servanthood. And Job says, did not he who made me in the womb make him as him as well, and did not one fashion us in his womb. Even Job understood that even though he had servants, they were both on the same plane. They were both, both equal, dignified to God. Galatians 3:28. Paul says, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all in Christ Jesus. So, yes, of course, we all have differences, as, as Paul was telling the Galatians here. But we all have equal dignity before God and equal position in Christ. And it's the basis upon which James and James 2, two says, do not show favoritism. So we have equal. Number two, we all have equal dignity before God. This example here um, is an example of how the Bible absolutely rips apart the foundations of slavery. Um, and it's where it says that, you know, people say, you know, one person's greater than the other. You know, the Bible does not condone any of that in any manner, in any way. Thirdly, we are equally submissive to God. If we look at what Paul is saying here, he's saying it to slaves and to masters, for that matter, both of them. He says, do what you do out of reverence for God, out of a submission to God. That's the whole point. A few verses that we want to support that um, are uh, Colossians 3.22. It says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord God, for as for the Lord and not for men. We're basically ultimately submitting to God. Ephesians 6, verses 5 and 9 says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Colossians 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That is a key verse. Not only do we have equal dignity dignity before God and are equally submissive to God, but we will all receive equal justice from God. Ephesians 6, 9 says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So the Bible condemns slavery that undermines God's creation and condemns slavery that violates God's word. So the Bible speaks clearly against slavery in specific, undeniable ways. Um, A couple in particular I want to touch on. The Bible denounces physical abuse. Okay? All over Scripture we see love one another, don't hurt one another. Don't abuse one another, but specifically when it comes to slavery. In Exodus 21, I want us to see where uh, God's law there is applying to slavery when it comes to abuse. God is giving, um, he's going into additional laws of the Old Testament. This is kind of after uh, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21 verses 26 through 27 says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go because of his tooth. In other words, if you hurt a slave, you lose a slave. So you don't want to be treating your slaves incorrectly. Back up in verse 20 of the same chapter of Exodus, it says, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand... He shall surely be punished. Being punished here, this word punished is also translated as avenged in some other uh, translations. Shall surely be punished. And uh, we'll realize that when a man strikes a slave and that slave dies, avenging justice will be taken to the slave's owner. Capital punishment. If you kill a slave in the Old Testament, you get capital punishment and you're going to die as well because of the way you treated him. So it's very clear that the the Bible denounces physical abuse of any kind among masters and servants and slaves. Also, the Bible also denounces human trafficking. Okay, we hear this term all the time during these days, you know, now. We hear it all the time human trafficking. We look up in verse 16 of Exodus 21. It's basically the buying, selling, stealing, battering of people and slavery. Verse uh, 16 of Exodus 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. In other words, human trafficking was also capital punishment during that time. So back in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, Paul has already addressed these kinds of slavery in 1 Timothy 1. If we look at verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1, it says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane for murderers of fathers and murder of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, sodomites. And then he has this word here, kidnappers. Anyone who kidnaps people for sale is unholy, profane, and is denying the gospel. I want us to see that very clearly that this, the Bible condemns and denounces physical abuse and human trafficking. If these two uh, points about physical abuse and human trafficking from the old, both the Old and New Testament, if these two truths have been followed and understood by early Christians, you know, that we, or the, the, the Deep South, if you want to say, if they understood this and followed the Bible, that type of slavery would have never existed, ever. The Bible explicitly denounces and condemns that kind of slavery that took place in the southern United States during that time. The second reason, um, slavery like this, physical abuse and human trafficking, it's not a thing of the past if we think about it. It's not just a part of our history, but it actually happens in the world today. Statistics estimate about 40.3% million slaves in the world today. Human trafficking, which includes buying, selling, trading, exploiting people for forced labor or or sex, human trafficking is the second largest and the fastest growing criminal industry in the world today. A few more statistics here. These are from UNICEF, by the way. Amid the millions of human trafficking victims in the world today, approximately 80% of them are women and girls, and half of them are minors. Over the past 30 years, over 30 million children have been sexually exploited through human trafficking, and at this moment, literally millions of children exist for that reason. That is terrifying. It's sad, very, very sad. Human trafficking is one of the fastest-growing criminal enterprises because it holds relatively low risk with high profit potential. Criminal organizations are increasingly attracted to human trafficking because, unlike drugs, humans can be sold repeatedly. So I want us to realize that this is really in the world today, and I want us to understand that the Bible condemns it, and therefore... Bible-believing Christians should absolutely stand against it. So with all that background of all that, I want us to get back to 1 Timothy 6, uh, 1 and 2, where the Bible is actually encouraging slaves in a way. And um, now that we have a little bit different perspective on what this passage is talking about, Paul is talking uh, to the congregation where Timothy was at at that time, and that was Ephesus. And as we said before, We had probably slaves and masters sitting right next to one another. And he encourages them. One way he encourages them, he says, he encourages them to honor their unbelieving masters. Okay? In verse 1, he's talking about that unbelieving slaves with unbelieving masters. And in verse 2, he's talking about slaves with believing masters. He says in verse 1, regarding their own master's Worthy of all honor. And it's the same word. It's a word that he uses in in previous chapters when he's talking about um, uh, the family of God and how to honor, honor widows and honoring elders. And now he says to honor your masters, respect them. Based on the same things we've talked about, the fact that they have dignity before God and they will receive justice from God. And then he goes on to say, he says, honor them so that, I love the so that's or therefore's, do this because, those are like one of my favorite phrases because it's a, it tells us this is why you should be doing this, okay, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. That is the reason why slaves are to honor their masters. Paul says, do this for two reasons. One, for the glory of God. And that's what's driving Paul here to tell this then. Um, if we were to go back and to study uh, 1 Timothy a little more, he tells us in chapter 2, he says, pray this way because it pleases God. In chapter 3, he says, elders, lead this way in order to not bring reproach upon God. In 1 Timothy 5, he says, care for widows in order to... To please God in order to not bring reproach from a sinful world upon God. So he says, do this for the glory of God. Paul's deepest concern is number one, the glory of God. That's what Paul is, is, is pushing here. Now we know um, that he is absolutely addressing masters and slaves here in slavery. But of course, when we study this more, we've talked about it here. You know, we can't help to think that, you know, all of us here in this room are under some sort of master today. There are employees and students and who may have unbelieving uh, bosses or teachers, whatever it may be. And we can take these things, we can take the teachings of Paul here and absolutely apply them to our lives. Scripture is most definitely teaching us if we have an unbelieving employer or unbelieving teacher to honor your employer or teacher to respect them so that when they see you, they see a picture of goodness and the love and the mercy and the glory of God. And if you're a student and we realize that, when we're a student, we understand that we're, everything that we do is for the glory of God. That means the assignments we do, the work we do, Everything that we do is number one for the glory of God. We're a representation. We're ambassadors to God. And it is a reflection of the glory of God. For those uh, who we have unbelieving, not non-Christian, non-Christian employers, that means we, you know, may work for a, a, a boss who's not very. Uh, easy to deal with sometimes but we do it out of reverence for God to not defame the name of God Peter said in 1 Peter 2 18 through uh, 20 he said servants be submissive to those to to your masters with all fear or some translations say respect and not only to those who are good and gentle but also to the harsh you know we all believe that we have maybe some unreasonable bosses at some time in one of our, in our uh, lives. And he goes on to say, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it? When you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Commendable before God. So honor unbelieving masters for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. Because even unbelieving, unjust masters, they also need the love and mercy and the goodness of God shown to them as well. Then he goes on to say in 1 Timothy 6, um, he says, then respect believing masters. So apparently what was happening here um, is that some of the masters were uh, uh, Christians and they had servants, of course. But it seems like some of these servants or slaves were actually taking advantage of their believing masters because maybe he's a Christian. He's, he's not going to be so hard on me. You know, he's not going to be, eh, you know, he'll understand why I can't, you know, maybe be in a little late tomorrow, maybe because we were hearing a long, long sermon, you know, one evening, and we can't make it tomorrow morning or whatever. He'll, he'll understand. You know, and that's not what Paul is condoning here at all. Paul says quite the opposite. Because they are a believing Christian and they are your masters, you should work even harder for them in your service to them. So if we're a student and even if... uh, you know maybe a high schooler and even if your t- teacher's sitting here in the room or I don't know what the case may be I know you know Wade brings his one of his students every now and then but just because your teacher or your boss is a Christian doesn't mean we can slack off because of that the bible expressly forbids that kind of thinking so ultimately what I don't want us to miss here the bible redeems slavery meaning that god takes like he does so many other things in the Bible that we can read, a product of sin, like slavery, he turns it into a picture of God's goodness towards the people, towards his people. I want us to realize the beauty of Christ in this picture. This is the gospel reality. Our master, our king, our Lord has become our servant. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 6, who... Talking about Jesus here. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant. Or a bond servant. the New King James says. This is out of the English Standard Version. But that same word servant here, this word here, is, is uh, uh, the word, Greek word doulos. And it is the same word that is used for slave in the 1 Timothy 6, chapter 1, uh, verse that we're studying. Same word. Christ became our Savior by becoming a servant or a slave for us. In John 13, remember when Jesus was with his disciples, Jesus took off his outer garment, wrapped it around his waist, got down, and washed his disciples' feet. Servitude. He came to serve. He said to his disciples in Mark 10, Verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He took on a robe of human flesh and took all of our sinful filth, guilt, and shame upon himself. He went to the cross. He paid the price. He paid the ransom. He stood in our place as our servant so that we could be redeemed. And this word redeemed is a picture of slavery. Slavery. When we talk about redemption, redemption is to buy something or to pay a redemption price. And you and I were slaves to sin. Absolutely. Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 1 or Romans 6 says that we were slaves to sin impurity, and, weak, and wickedness. He paid the price with his life, his death on the cross, with his resurrection from the grave so that we could be set free from sin, and become a son or a daughter of God, and that is great news, absolutely great news. The essence of Christianity, when we realize that, we are gladly becoming Jesus' slave and his servant. When we understand what he has done for us, we will do anything that we can to serve him. When Paul was looking for a word to describe himself at the beginning of Romans 1, he says, "Paul." A slave to Christ. This is who I am. I belong to Jesus. This is what I'm doing, Paul says. I'm working for somebody else. I'm working for Jesus. I'm working for the glory of somebody else and not me. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that we belong to somebody else and we are his slaves and his servants. So are you a slave to Christ Jesus this morning? If not, why not? Why not serve the one who deserves all the service? Absolutely he deserves it. Please choose that life of service by repenting or changing from our past of sin and choosing to serve Jesus with all our heart of what he has done for you and I. And once we make that decision, we confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God and we are baptized for the remissions of our sins. But if we have slip back into slavery or sin, Uh, please choose to come back to Jesus today. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com.